Why are you laughing about my hat for it? Please make the hat the cover photo for this podcast. No way. Yeah. This is my everyday around Anchorage hat. Get get yourself in a bathroom mirror. Take a picture. Take a selfie or take a standing photo of you in a bathroom mirror and make that the cover for this podcast. Close on, right? <laughs> Please. <laughs> We're well, not wearing the hat. Do you want me to be wearing just the hat? We don't want to get kicked off anything, okay? My bad, my bad. Not that, that this is not that kind of podcast, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, what's new, Kyle? Um, I spent 45 minutes shoveling my driveway today. Yeah. In yeah, the there's a lot of tundra? There, what? You're up in the frozen tundra. Yeah, there was so much snow on the ground. The bottom of Emily's car was scraping the the fresh powder we got so i had to and then today was probably the roughest day driving in anchorage like i almost got a couple accidents today spinning all around and sliding i do so i, I was leaving work and i was driving home a different way because thursdays um I, I get off a little earlier and uh this car this truck in front of me was driving and he went all of a sudden to the middle lane and I was like, oh, he must be turning left. So I started to speed up and I looked up and there was a freaking cow moose in the middle of my lane. So I slammed on my brakes and I went, and I just kept sliding and I slid for probably 10 feet and I stopped about a car's length away from this moose and she walked across the road. Oh, that was just going to be my question. I was like, man, the f- it's all snowy and frozen up there. And I was like, have you had any run-ins with moose lately? No, that was the first one I've had in a while. <clears throat> what about the you seen the uh the the moose uh and her calf lately the cow and her calf no i think that that calf got eaten there was some some person on the anchorage bear tracker a facebook group posted uh-huh. a video in my neighborhood of a brown bear catching and killing a calf moose on their like ring doorbell or whatever in the yard in our neighborhood That's crazy Imagine just like getting a notification and you're like hoping it's an Amazon package and instead of <laughs> grizzly bear running off with a calf moose, you're just like, oh, all right. I heard it was pretty gruesome because you can like hear this calf being just like torn apart while it's still alive. Oh, I mean, you listen to like deer cry after you shoot them or something. That's that's like one of the most brutal things. Have you ever heard a, a bear moan when it dies? Yeah, the the cry or it's like a. Well, I haven't personally heard it, but I've watched like uh, like videos of it, and my my uncles and stuff have told me about it. It's pretty gnarly. It's sad, bro. So there's this. This is kind of like going off on a side road here, but um, there's this video of like a like big boar grizzly bear, like hopping into a cave of like um like two black bear cubs and just like murdering them alive and then uh you can't see them like getting torn apart but you can hear them and it's like and the guy records it for like eight to ten minutes and you're just watching this you don't even he's like videotaping the tree line and you just hear like screaming it is that's horrifying it's terrible but you know i think in some way it's like 
we got to remember to circle life in some sort. Yeah, I mean, look at <clears throat> look at Washington right now and their spring bear. Mm-hmm. That is shiggy. Yeah, you could that, say that. That I'm sucks sure. because, um, I mean, getting rid of spring bear, I feel like, is – that's a big deal. That's a well. The worst thing is it's a foot in the door for people to just cancel hunting outright in Washington. I mean, yeah, you you have so much influence um, from people who don't hunt um, or even do anything. I'm or hunting or fish or anything like that. Yeah, they don't. Uh, that Washington could be in danger of having more than just spring bear hunting. Um, spring bear hunting. I mean, I can definitely see. Like in your instance, you're talking about a excuse me, a grizzly bear killing black bear cubs, but that happens with boar black bears and black bear cubs because they kill those cubs to get the sow in heat so that they, and he can breed that sow and pass on his genes. Um, I can totally see that this could this could make things a little worse. In that case, you're gonna have a lot of um, you're just gonna have a lot more bears. Yeah, and it's like that's a horrible way to go. I'd much rather harvest a boar black bear than have him kill a bunch of um, baby black bears. Like that's even more gruesome, I think, than hunting in general. I feel like if people who were against hunting bears knew what male bears did to not only cubs but deer and elk and everything else, I think it'd be way different. Yeah, like during calfing season. I mean, that's like. I mean, imagine coming into the new world shaken and now there's going to be, you know, so this, this, this is kind of the way I look at it. Right. And this is going down. This is all kind of bias, personal opinion. Um, but I think that we've, as people have, I mean, if you look at it, we, what is like the percentage we've killed, like, I want to say it's like 90% of what was living, you know, it might not have been humans, but like 90% of what once was here is gone. And I think that uh, humans, our ancestrals um, of our past have, you know, eliminated things that they didn't find like worthy in some way. So now we're stuck on a, on a pyramid food chain of what we defined as food. Um, and then it has a little bit of pred, uh, predita- I can't say it. What is it? Pred- predation. 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 Thank you. Um, and it to keep a balance and try to keep everything healthy. And so what happens is I, as much as like, we wish we could just, you know, you could let it go and everything would balance itself out. I think at some extent, is that's not capable of doing that anymore because we're so far away from the original food chain. If does that kind of make sense? Yeah. We're just, we've affected population so much of both just taking game animals in Washington. We've, we've affected the population and the habits of both ungulates, your deer and your elk predators like bears and cougars that they can't balance themselves out. Um, where you'll you're either going to have too many predators and not enough ungulates, or vice versa, and too much of anything is not good. And that's a big thing. Is like 
you want to promote having more of one species, excuse me, or the other. Yeah. If you have too many of that species, then they're going to start getting sick. They're going to start dying. Look at the EHD and stuff in East mm-hmm. Northeastern Washington. Not to say that that was necessarily connected to predators. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. There are a shit ton of whitetails up there. And with the, especially with the drought we had this year, where we had so little water um, that a lot of these animals are going and they're drinking out of the same water sources, contracting the same thing. And then they were dying, going to water sources, passing it on. Yeah. These are the type of things that kick in when you have environmental factors and large populations is because now they're getting sick and dying off and only the strongest survive. So, I mean, that's like a natural balance, but so much of that is influenced by humans now that there has something has to be done to manage populations. And in this case, it's bears. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could, you know, you kind of bring up the, it's like a gateway into the rest of our hunting and our, um, you could almost go all the way to our outdoor industry in some sense. Um, If you've been, I don't know if you've been following, but like our, our fellow Mm -hmm. state in Oregon, um, they actually got, uh, something enough signatures to push onto the ballot for like to stop all hunting um did you see that that was that last year uh it was recently i I don't have a time or kind of a quote on that and um but from my understanding is i mean there was a few articles i read one from i believe it was meteors but um yeah i mean you start giving these people uh, on all, you know, not not just one or the other, but on all platforms, you know, an inch. Eventually, it could be a, a mile. Um, so I think I think that hunting is a dying breed in some ways, you know. For sure, it definitely is. And if we as sportsmen and women don't do something to combat that combat's the right word then we're going to lose it entirely spring bears what i i believe if i read everything right one of the arguments was that we're hunting bears during their rut where if that was one of their main factors again i think i'm pretty sure that's what i heard or what i read if that's one of the main factors then what about our deer and our elk seasons? Like you hunt elk in September, that's the elk rut. One of the reasons it's, I wouldn't say easier to hunt an elk, but one of the ways that you can be successful as hunting is because you are hunting a rutting bull elk who has one thing on his mind. Yeah. Same thing for late season deer hunting. You, you're literally hunting bucks in the rut, looking for does who are really dumb. I watched my dad shoot a buck one time. Um, got drawn for a late season tag with a rifle and this buck literally was following a doe and the doe ran off and he just stared at us, stared at us. He stared at us so long. My dad was ready to turn broadside and he finally just shot him straight on in the chest because he wouldn't turn because he was so rutted up. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going to take bear hunting away because it's the right, it's going to happen to everything else, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and in some sense it's the, you know, bear, like bear hunting is not, hand over fist easy like i mean they're really they're amazing creatures and just to put this out there so people know me and kyle have so much respect for these animals i mean 
getting out um me and kyle both have trail cam footage of i have a trail cam footage of a bear just tearing one of my trail cams apart and you know i think most people would be like oh man i'm i'm losing my trail cam but in some sense i was like wow this is like it's amazing this bear sniffed out some type of scent on my trail cam and tore it up i mean and i got video of it um yeah so but uh yeah i think in every sense we need some level of balance or um you know i'm not i'm not a biologist i and i'm not a politician i'm just a person that really likes to do hunting and fishing and i think you know i'm not speaking for kyle but i think kyle feels the same way on a lot of those topics and um yeah it's just it's rough to see it is bear hunting now i've never spring bear hunted mm-hmm. um, but bear hunting is my favorite it's my favorite thing to hunt in washington honestly i've i've been i've shot three bears um in washington and the first two were accidents i mean I always carried a bear tag because I never know if you're going to see one. And I happened to see C2 and uh, back, I think they were back to back years. I was hunting archery season in September and I shot one in Northeast Washington and one in central Washington. And then uh, last year was the first year I'd ever actually like targeted bears. Cause I really wanted to shoot another bear. And um, it's just totally, they're a totally different way to target predators that it's totally different than deer elk hunting you gotta it's a it's something entirely different and i have so much respect for them and where they live and their routines and how curious they are they're always moving they're always checking things out the way they eat is so cool to watch the way they interact and i don't know i have a a huge respect for predators they're just they're like us, man. They're looking for something in their next meal, the next thing to eat, and they're cruising country. And there's there's a reason there's not as many predators as you are, say, an ungulates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they're just so so cool, and their numbers do need to be managed because last year, um, where I shot my bear, that same week we saw one, two. I think we saw like five bears in that canyon or something in that one canyon. Um, and I shot my bear like a half mile from, I shot my bear standing on a main trail, a half mile from the parking lot. So it's like, they're there. They're around people. I, I talked to multiple people on that trail um, who had seen bears or like running or they're hiking. The bears would literally jump up right off the side of the trail and take off. Uh, <laughs> So, like, in some instances, it's not only managing uh, populations, it's also controlling, like, it's a safety issue, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's a, I mean, you got to do some sense of uh, population control um, because, I, I mean, um, here's, like, another instance as you look at kind of the situations in Montana and their grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're moving outside of Yellowstone now. And now it seems like every year that we go on and we keep letting um, these things populate, um, 
I mean, it just seems like more and more either people in the fishing industry or people just enjoying the outdoors or, I mean, just people out enjoying the river, you know, they're just getting attacked by these bears and it's not on, I wouldn't say it's the bear's fault and I wouldn't say it's the person's fault. I just think it's just in, you know, the numbers are getting so far and far out that they, they're going to start, they need to go somewhere and that's, you know, if that makes sense. So. No, for sure. There's just so many G bears now in the lower 48 and they, they just can't get them. The hard part I think is getting them delisted. Like look at the wolves it took. Yeah. I remember I was in um, like high school or junior high like or middle school, seventh grade. And I was like reporting on wolves and like them helping the ecosystems and Yellowstone and everything was just coming out, you know, about, wolves starting to move their way back in and that was you know 10 10 or so years ago 15 years ago and now we're here where we're at and in that time it took to get them delisted to where you could hunt them they just their numbers exploded and now we have them in washington um and they're not huntable in washington and i'm not I'm, i don't i know wolves are a really controversial topic keaton and i have talked about this off the podcast about how much we want to breach the subject but it's just the fact that getting things um, to where we can manage them is really tough. And I can especially see it in wolves because that's a dog, right? And a dog, a lot of people have dogs or have friends that have dogs or been in contact with dogs. Everybody loves dogs. And to think about trying to uh, manage populations of wild dogs by hunting each and hunting them. uh, I think that, messes with a lot of people i think people have a hard time um understanding that and accepting that and i think it's the same way with bears everybody thinks of yogi and bear and everybody thinks of teddy bears and they see these beautiful fluffy bears you know like emily for example emily's all about bears she loves bears she thinks they're really really cute that she they're really cuddly looking but Right, literally, as we're speaking, I'm speaking right now. She's literally sitting on the couch, leaning up against one of my bear hides from one of the bears I shot. Like, she understands, she thinks they're cool, but she also understands that their populations need to be controlled. Oh, my my favorite animal growing up has always been like grizzly bears because it's so, it was just so amazing to me to see like videos of these, um, you know, brown bears, grizzly bears, you know, jumping in rivers yeah. and catching fish you know swimming after catching fish and it's like man that's that's hard to do especially like you know growing up fishing you're like man i it's hard to catch them on like gear and stuff let alone or even try to like you reach for one they know you're there and they take off and they spook and these bears make it look like it's just an everyday thing for them um and so just like growing up and watching that i i just think they're amazing and how big and strong and and how fast of a unit they are um it's just there's something else so for sure i don't remember i don't know how we got started on the bear topic but yeah. we're here now we're here i think it's been a uh, we we got you kind of brought up spring bear um so i i think there's a lot of emotions and a lot of topics in our hunting and fishing and i think a lot of people feel different ways about everything but at the end of the day we got to look at what our scientists and biologists are seeing, what um, people, you know, hunters. I think that's one thing that we as hunters get left out 
in the consideration. Um, I mean, uh, hunters and fishermen were out there most of the year and we're going to see a lot of stuff. You know, I, I know guys that spend hours and hours in certain units, certain rivers, and they can almost call out, like you come around the corner, you can almost guarantee where, you know, a, a buck's going to be, or like, but like one thing for me is I always point out the uh, bighorn sheep. I found them in the fall and almost uh, like out of 10 times, I probably had them there eight times. And I could be like, as we come around this corner, if you look to the right at, at this rock, you'll see, and they're just like standing there, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's just something food for thought, you know? For sure. And if somebody, if people really want to do some stuff, I yeah. failed on this. I should have commented, even though I'm not a Washington resident, I was a Washington resident. I should have commented when that comment session was open so that I could have a say like, Hey, we shouldn't get rid of bear season. And this is why I, mean, I feel like as sportsmen and women, we're really passionate about it, but in a lot of ways, um, everybody, including myself, especially myself, someone who enjoys hunting bears should be doing more to promote keeping this around as opposed to saying, ah, somebody else will take care of it. Or, ah, it's not really going to go away. Cause you open your eyes right now. You look at it as of, as of now, spring bear season, 2022 in Washington state canceled so that's what happens when we don't get together use facts and actually promote our culture our lifestyle to keep going one last thing and then i think we should continue on um but i think that um i think it was kind of wrong for them to get in a tie vote instead of continuing it they put a pause to it um and that's just that's personal opinion um but I, I think that if if people you know we as sportsmen we put our money towards tags i know people a lot of people put in a lot of money to get that opportunity which not only should that should go towards conservation and a lot of other things for bears for a lot of animals um and fisheries um and uh, yeah, I, yeah. Gotcha. Well, welcome to another episode of the Young Guys Podcast. <laughs> um, Keaton and I are just sitting down tonight, um, just bullsh- bullshitting. I mean, this is what Keaton and I do a lot of nights anyway. And uh, we kind of planned tonight. We, we didn't have a guest for you guys, and we kind of planned that all of these things I've had on my mind and I'm sure a lot of things Keaton's had on his mind and some of the topics we've already discussed, like we're saving a lot of these to go really more in depth on the podcast. Cause Keaton are going to have these conversations anyway. So we're like, why not record it? Cause I know we know you guys are going to think the same thing and you want to hear about the same things. And, you know, I hope, I hope on our side, when we're discussing um, we can almost all bathe in our frustrations together. So that, that's, that's a really weird way to put it. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know what I mean? Not getting weird, but, uh, just I got pretty of, weird. that got pretty weird. <laughs> all, all five listeners are like, I want to bathe in that. Oh, oh my god! No, no, no. Okay, we're going up. We're going down a dark road. Anyways, back to the topic though. Um, we're just hoping that you can, 
you know, you feel the way we feel and, you know, maybe you don't feel the way we feel. We're not, we're not telling you how to feel, but um, just to know that you're not on these topics alone. So. Yep. For sure. Speaking of listeners, um, we released an ep- our episode today, episode five, um, with Mark Stoidel, uh, talking about fly fishing, filming, and uh, it was posted online on a Facebook group, um, posted on our social media, shared on Mark's social media, and we are super pumped that we have received our first uh, ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is super awesome. We were... This, this is validating. It feels validating to me, Keaton. Does it feel validating to you? It feels validating. It feels great. It feels like uh, we're not just speaking into microphones every couple, you know, every week. So it feels sure. great. Did you see that we not only got a review, but we also got three ratings? Three ratings. Yep. That's awesome. We have, as of now, we have three five-star ratings. Appreciate that, guys. Mm-hmm. and um, our one review says great podcast uh, for anybody into fly fishing this is a great podcast for those that are looking to get into the business of fly fishing this is even a better podcast and this was by sparse gray hackle um, again this is on our apple podcast so super stoked that you guys are listening you're taking time to review let us know that you're enjoying the podcast leaving us a rating again helps us out lets us know that we're bringing you guys stuff that you want to hear. And I'm happy out of all of that. What was most validating to me and made me the happiest was to see that that person come in and said, if you're looking to get into the business, this is an even better podcast. And I, 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 I think that's super cool that we yeah. our our conversations and the people we've already interviewed talking about guiding can help other people get into possibly guiding or working at a fly shop or doing something in the, in the outdoor industry. I think that's super cool. How people, people are, are digging it already. Absolutely. So I'm going to, I'm going to start turning the page here, Kyle, cause I got a topic I'm wanted, I wanted to talk about. All right. Uh, let's, I got two actually, these could tie into each other. Yeah. Um, so one, I, this could be, this could be a lighter topic or it could be uh a dark topic on depending on where we go with it, but let's just, let's just send it. All right. Um, so my first question, and I want to hear what you think about this is, do you think, do you think scouting a river, like a seasonal river before it opens is beneficial or not beneficial? Scouting as in like, so like, you know how rivers change and stuff. Do you think it's beneficial to go spend your time? You know, I'm, I'm thinking like, more of like a Natchez size river or something like that. Maybe a big flood happens. Do you think it's beneficial to go and take your time before the season opens and try to find new spots? Or do you think you should just, just go for it? Um, you know, I never thought about it that way. Um, I never considered doing that. Yeah. Um, I, I can see where it'd be a good thing. I mean, I know I go pre, if I, if I haven't say on some rivers, uh, I haven't, uh, I'm just going to throw Rocky Ford under the bus because everybody knows about Rocky Ford. Yeah. If I'm going to guide a trip out at Rocky Ford and I haven't personally fished Rocky Ford in a while, I'm going to go fish it 
the week or a couple days ahead of time to see what they're biting on. I mean, you know, I have a pretty good general idea of what they're going to bite, but yeah. I want to go make sure I got the right size, the right color, all that um, to make sure that my clients have a good trip. So yeah, I, I can definitely see where scouting could be beneficial. Even if you're not fishing, you're going and you're maybe you're maybe you're you're ready to take your clients to a spot. It's opening day. They've had you booked since the since Christmas time or something, and your river opens in like May or June or something. Yeah. And they want to go hit opening day, and you're like, all right, we're gonna go to my favorite hole. We're gonna get under this awesome hatch and you get there, and a flood this year literally filled your hole with gravel. I've, I've had it happen on some of my, the rivers I've guided. It's like, where did my hole go? <clears throat> so I think if you were to go out ahead of time, scout it out, have a plan, how are you going to access it? Where, where can you access it? What are you going to fish? Maybe flip some rocks while you're there. You can't fish, but you can see, Oh, that's what they're eating. Or, Oh, maybe there's a blooming olive flying around. Yep. I, I, I think scouting is an excellent idea. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking about this the <laughs> other day. And I was like, I was like, I wonder what, like, if anyone else does it. Cause there's, there's a, um, there's a few rivers and creeks that I like to fish. And, um, it's, I mean, it's changing like all the time you get a good, you know, snow melt or, I mean, this fall, we got a big, we got a giant rainstorm down here that raised our rivers like way up. Um, so I'm, I'm just expecting change from, you know, even if it's minor might not be as as uh, um, big as like some of our floods in the past, but um, you know, I, I think going out and taking your time and really evaluating that way you can spend less time on the amount. Cause like, if you get a three month season, right. I don't want to be spending my first two weeks trying to find the spots that I want to fish. I want to be like, I have looked at this spot. I've looked at this spot and I've looked at this spot and these are, I'm going to hit this Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I'm going to get out and fish and figure it out, you know, instead of being like driving, you know, 40 miles of a river hopping out here and there and being like, maybe I shouldn't be fishing here. So um, I just wanted to know your take on that. I was kind of interested and um, yeah. Now let's go to another, here's my other question um what is urban fisheries like in anchorage alaska that's a great question uh i don't know i haven't i have personally have not done much urban fishing yet in anchorage because most of my stuff was um on the parks highway and i was guiding outside of anchorage and i never whenever i was home i was always basically doing chores my honeydew list. Um, yeah. Um, have, you, have you heard, like, have you talked to anyone at like local shops or like, have you heard about it or even like, uh, like listen to like maybe a podcast or something about it or like, do you have any? Um, I have this guy that I work with Heather's choice who does a lot of stuff in town. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard a little bit about it and there are places uh, pretty close to Anchorage, whereas it can be very popular for salmon fishing and trout fishing. And um, it's definitely there. I mean, I drive over uh, on my way to work every day. I drive over a river that has salmon and trout in it that it's literally drive over the top of it. Are some of the most busiest roads in Anchorage or some places um, there are literally restaurants where the deck is like 
right on the side of the river. Yeah. Um, under the goes like it goes right to the middle of town. Um, so it's definitely there. You can definitely access it within minutes and walk up or down river along trails and and fish it that way. There's also lakes. I mean, we have some lakes in some of these parks that uh, you can fish. You can walk out and fish it when they, when there's no ice on it. Or like right now, you can go ice fish on these lakes, and they're in the middle of town. They're in some of these parks. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunity. I just I don't know it yet. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I just was curious. Um, I mean where I grew up, it's a little different than you. And I have a lot of urban fisheries around and I'm like weirdly fascinated by urban fisheries and the effects that go into them. And I was just wondering on what scale does Anchorage have for urban fisheries? Um, since like the only part in Alaska I've been to is Ketchikan and it's just like a little, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a decent sized town, but, um, compared to like some of the towns we have down here, it's, moderately small no definitely anchorage anchorage is big enough to have urban fisheries and they're there i just i don't know them but i'm definitely going to spend more time um learning them next year because they're they're not that far from my house i wish i would have checked out a little more and I, I know they got fish in them i know that we have one of the biggest uh northernmost brown bear populations right here in anchorage uh on one of these creeks guy I work with says there's this one creek that he doesn't fish at a certain point north um mm -hmm. or excuse me a certain part uh like the west or like further into the mountains mm -hmm. on this creek away from anchorage because there's so many bears he sees bears every single time and doesn't go there by himself anymore that's crazy yeah so um yeah so i wish i i wish i knew more and i will um just uh not currently yeah that's well i'm excited to hear it's gonna be i'm sure that you know you're itching to get out and do some fishing for yourself for sure and uh especially after my trip to boise i really wish i'd packed a fly rod uh, during thanksgiving break yeah just thinking about that and i went through a bunch of my um my nymphs the other day i had from the lower 48 and going through it and looking at all my bugs, like, dude, I want to get back out there and talking to um, Mark and watching his videos and watching some of my other favorite filmmakers on YouTube. It's like, dude, I got to get back out there. Can't wait to fish. Yeah. There's, we could have like three feet of snow on the ground right now. And it's a little hard to fly fish right now with three feet of snow. I, I could believe that. Yeah. So. You know, we're, we're at Christmas time talking about some good holiday gifts. And I was talking that not everyone needs a thousand dollar fly rod. What they could use is, you know, like a lot of the little things like a dozen flies or um, some, some of the, you know, like, like indicators or, you know, fly box or, you know, it's a lot of the little stuff that we lose or, you know, as a guide or as an angler, just an everyday angler that adds up that, you know, like I lose indicators more than I should. And it's just nice to have a bunch of them there. So I, I, I think guiding in Washington, I might've lost like four indicators in three and a half, four years. 
Yeah. As soon as I moved to Alaska, I probably lost like four dozen indicators this year. Airlocks, like nice indicators. Yeah. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, it's not my clients losing the airlock systems. I'm just risking it for the biscuit. And I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a nice hole under that branch. And I just like try to slap it in, you know, just give it a nice like sidearm cast. And next thing I know, I've, I've hooked an oak tree and there goes everything. So been there, done that. One thing that, uh, Related to indicators that I found this year is that color matters and indicators. Have you ever considered the color of your indicators, Keaton? Mm, I haven't had the privilege to see that yet. I've heard like you and I've heard Keegan and some other guides talk about it. They're like, yeah, we're fishing the exact same thing, exact same depth. And one has an orange indicator on, the other has a pink indicator on. And the guy with the orange indicator is just slaying fish. The guy with the pink indicator isn't. And I switched to an orange airlock and boom, they're both slaying fish. Well, it's not, yeah, I, it's not so much orange versus pink. I like orange and pink. Yeah. Right on the Yakima, I always fished orange and pink because that's what people can see. Up in Alaska, what I learned from my head guide, and I saw this happen fishing for steelhead, is a, a white colored indicator, which is hard to see because yeah. it blends in with the foam and the glare and stuff, but it also blends in with the foam and the glare and stuff. So it blends in more to the fish. I was fishing um, on one of the best steelhead rivers in the state of Alaska and it was crystal clear water. And I was fishing at the mouth and the head guy and I were fishing together. He was spotting from this log and the steel had started swimming up the river and I saw it. So I ran ahead of it and I intercepted it and flocked out my bead rig. And I had a big pink indicator on and that fish, I literally watched that fish swim towards my bead, look up, see my indicator and boom, haul ass past it. Cause he saw my pink indicator. Something might've been different if I'd fished a different color indicator. And then yeah. from that moment on, I've only fished white indicators this year. And I think it really helps. I really, I really think it does on how those fish um, perceive. Um, yeah. Because if, if I, if every time I got hooked in the mouth and I looked up and there was a pink or an orange thing there, I think after a while I would stop eating it. But if you look up and it's like, uh, it kind of blends in a white indicator. They're not, I don't, I think they have a harder time putting two and two together and it just looks more natural. Well, you put it in the foam line. I mean, just think about like, you know, you throw anything with like a white parachute or anything, mm -hmm. like a, a white indicator and you put it in that foam line. I Sometimes I'm like, I'm trying to watch my, my clients, you know, dry flies with the white parachute. I'm like, uh, uh, I think a fish just came up. I'd set. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes they do hook up on fish. And then other times I'm like, just reset. And I'm not going to tell them, but. I'm doing that so I can watch for their fly land so I can see where things are at again. That That's makes fun. sense. Yeah. But uh, I think if airlock, if there's anyone from airlock listening, you guys need to make an, a white indicator. We'll put like a little orange dot on top or something so we can, see, so you can see it on top, but the rest is all white. That'd be cool. I even, I kind of camouflaged mine this year. I had white ones. And then I also wrote my initials on it because in our guide barn every day, we had a, uh, we we'd use 
we didn't use the same rods every day. So somebody else might grab your rod. And so we, I would write my, in, my initials on indicators so that if we left the rods strung up, who knows who either to give the indicators back to, or that I could take them and say, no, this was my indicator. I'm not taking your indicators. And yeah. in a way I think it kind of helps camouflage it because you're writing initials on both sides of an indicator and it kind of breaks up that white even more. Yeah. Well, that'd be interesting. I should, I should go, I should do it next year and like have one client fish a certain color indicator and one client fish another color and see what the difference is. You should almost, as nerdy as it sounds, you should tally it and see like, you know, maybe if you're just fun fishing, like go out and see like on your day, fish just try to keep like the fly the same, mm-hmm. change the different indicators and see if it has a, and like any effect. That would be cool. Kyle, the scientist is going to come at you with some good info about urban fisheries and about indicator color. There you go. Stay tuned. 2022. Kyle Wilkinson for scientist 2020. <laughs> uh, we'd all be in trouble. What, uh, what else do you think people should get for Christmas for stocking stuffers or. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I really elaborated on like indicators split, you know, split shot fly boxes, um, I think an assortment of flies. Um, but like, if you're, if you're just looking for, it depends on the type of fisherman in your life. Um, I think there's really great, like if you're doing winter fishing, there's great clothing out there, you know, technologies really come a long way. And there's like clothing that, um, where like your pits and your hot spots, it'll keep it neutral temperature, but like the rest of your body, nice and warm. That's a big thing for me is I get really hot and like really sweaty, especially when you're hiking around in rivers or going up and down hills, um, you get really warm. So finding a nice like underlayer to keep me warm, but not too warm, um, is a great gift. Um, apparel, um, hats, uh, you know, you don't have, like I said, you don't have to get that person, that fly fisherman or fly fisher woman in your life, a thousand dollar, you know, sage or, or an Orvis rod, you can get them a lot of little things that, and me personally, I think it'd go a long way. So what about you? What do you think, Kyle? Well, I totally agree. I mean, I want a new, I'm getting a new rod for Christmas. I want a new rod for Christmas, <laughs> but uh, it's not a thousand dollar rod. Yeah. Um, but that's also because I need, I have, I have a quiver of rods, but there's a section of that quiver that is called Alaska that doesn't quite isn't filled yet mm-hmm. um, just because of how we fish up here is so much different. Um, it requires a little bit of a stiffer action rod. And this kind of, this kind of leading in transitioning into the next part of the conversation that Keith and I want to talk about. Um, <clears throat> the rod that I'm looking at right now is called the Reddington Predator. Um, it is a stiff act. It's a fast action rod. It's a little bit stiffer. And as a nine and a half foot six weight, it's an extra six inches, which is adds for a little bit more control, gives you a little bit easier to mend a little bit, uh, another six inches to fight fish. It also has a fighting, butt as a six weight integrated into the rod, whereas most of the time, I feel like you don't start getting a fighting butt until you get what, like a seven or an eight weight. Yeah. 
Um, this Reddington Predator is specifically made for targeting harder fighting bigger fish. Mm-hmm. And up here in Alaska, um, generally your trout are bigger and they're going to fight pretty hard. And you're fishing bead rigs with sometimes up to like two or three split shot, a big bobber, or you're slapping a bobber with like a Dalai Lama and two split shots. So, I mean, you need a stiff rod just to cast. And I've even had clients um, catch pinks and silvers and chums on this nine and a half foot six weight Reddington Predator. So that's the rod that I really want. I really like it. Um, I have other rods. I've got uh, I fish, I've guided with other rods, various brands, sizes, weights, and all around I found this rod uh, that I really, really like. Um, and so that's what I'd like to get. I'm getting it for Christmas. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of build up my quiver and uh, fill this niche that it's not quite filled for me yet. I, I love my Orvis Clearwaters. I have uh, um, two six weights, two five weights that I guided with. And the six weights did okay for me up here. Uh, but initially at the beginning of the season, when I was fishing mouths of creeks uh, where these trout were staging before they went up the river um, after breakup, I could not, my rod was not stiff enough. Part of that was probably my line because I had just regular uh, clear water line. Um, really wouldn't have a powerful head or anything. But I, I couldn't back cast and I was having to roll cast and I couldn't get my flies out far enough um, just because I didn't have enough backbone. I didn't have a heavy enough taper. Whereas breaking out a heavier rod, I had to break out my eight weight recon with, I think I have a power pro um, pro line on it from Orvis. And I was able to roll cast a big bead rig with an indicator and get out to where I needed it to be. Yeah. So I just need a heavier rod and I needed a faster rod with a, with a heavier head. So I think that all around this new rod is going to be really great in my arsenal. I'm going to want to use my six weight more because I didn't hardly ever use my six weights this year. I almost exclusively use my eight weight, which is almost a little too overkill for some of the trout that we were catching. Yeah. So if you are going to buy, I think in, in my instance, like if you are going to get somebody a rod or get somebody gear, um make sure uh you know i mean it's obviously it's a thought that counts but also make sure that you're getting them something that they want or need or um can use like um no offense against say emily goes out she knows better than to go to the fly tying section and buy me something off the rack because she could buy me some size 28 bead for nymphs yeah think that she got me the right thing and it wasn't and so she knows that things are specific right and so if you're going to get something super specific for somebody make sure that you know exactly what it is that they want or what it is that they need so you can get them that exact thing or just buy them a gift card to your local fly shop or something because then they can get exactly what they need gift card you can't go wrong with gift cards I, um, if i could just get a gift card for everything i'd be totally happy with that so if you're looking to buy your your partner or your kid a fly rod i think the two most important things is making sure you find the weight for the type of fishing they're doing and the weight is like a caliper uh caliber caliber to a gun 
Um, I mean, you're not going to go elk hunting with a 22, so you don't want to go buy a four weight for that person that goes tarpon fishing in your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, just kind of figure out if you're like, if you can just find out what kind of fishing they do, you go to the fly shop, say, Hey, I, I'm looking for this price range and my, whoever I'm buying this for likes to fish for trout. Let's say, I think that and pairing your rod with the right line is a huge part to your success. Um, because if you, like I've heard of uh, stories of people buying fast action rods and then not buying the right size line or uh, buying a line that may not be suitable for that rod and they're just not having a great experience and it's not because the rod's performance is poor it's because they didn't make a good line pairing to that rod um, so that's just my two cents um, keaton's two cents of the day uh, just make sure you get a good uh, pairing with your rod and fly line back to you kyle for sure uh when i first started uh Fishing 200 rods, I had a switch rod that my dad bought me. It was a Cabela's model, and he went to our local Cabela's, and uh, they outfitted him with a rod and reel, and it was an absolute piece of shit to cast. And I just could not get down the roll cat or uh, tossing that thing two-handed, whatever. And then last year, I uh, fished with my head guide before the season, the guide season started. We were fishing, and he had a seven weight that was perfectly paired up with everything and it casts like a dream and i'm like one I've, i have fished a lot more so i can i understand how to do it more and i've got a good feel for it but i also think i had just a rod and a line that was not matched up correctly um i don't think the guy really set my dad up and my dad didn't know and what he was doing he's never done a lot of two-handed fishing and he even has a hard time casting with his setup and i think it's just because we have the wrong setup <coughs> So when Keaton, excuse me, when Keaton set me up, I was moving to Alaska. My first trip I was going to go on once I moved up here was a steelhead trip. And I didn't have a two-handed, excuse me, two-handed fly rod. And I wanted something to swing with and possibly nymph with. So Keaton and I went back and forth on what type of rod I wanted which was a switch rod and I wanted, I think I have an eight weight cause I wanted to catch steelhead on it, but I also wanted to maybe use it for Chinook and pinks and silvers and whatnot. So, um, we went back and forth about the rod, found the rod I wanted. And then Keaton was like, all right, what, uh, grain weight of like what head and what grain weight is going to match with this rod. And I had to go look through the specs and because Keaton worked with me through what rod I wanted and then finding what shooting line it needed and then what kind of what size head it could have both for Scandi and Skagit, I was then able to get this rod that freaking casts like a dream and makes just way more sense because everything is paired. The rod is flexing in a certain way that the line works with or vice versa. And it allows me to lay my casts out there where I want them and how I want them versus trying to force something um, that just can't trying to force something that isn't just isn't working is this your casts are going to be shit. That makes sense. So <clears throat> pairing your line to the rod or like what I was talking about earlier, I couldn't roll cast far enough out because I had a 
medium action rod and a medium action line and it just wasn't loading up the, the rod couldn't load enough and the line wasn't fast and tapered and had such a shooting head that it wouldn't it wouldn't go out so. yeah yeah um it's really important just kind of adding on to find that right grain window each rod is going to be built uh built differently and uh, the specs are going to be different um little tip um from like putting together spare rods and stuff at first i was i was it's a really daunting task especially if you're just getting into it um, but if you're looking, you know, you're going to order it offline and you're like, okay, I'm going to get this rod, make sure that you have a large enough arbor to fit all of the things that you need on a spay. You know, you're going to have backing, running line, heads, and, you know, even sink tips. So just making sure that um, that reel is big enough to hold all that. And then um, you can look up Rio spay recommendations. Um, and find they usually update it like they have the 2020 out and it has most of the new rods um, pretty much all your common rods are on there um, scroll down and it'll tell you the grain window um, you don't want to exceed that grain window and you definitely don't want to go under that grain rent window um, you're trying to you know i if you're a new caster i like to go towards the front of the window like more to the heavier side um, but, and that's just, you know, I, I'm not a spay wizard or anything. I'm just an average guy that put a get together enough. And I found it when I first started um, doing casting that a heavier head definitely benefited me. For sure. Oh, so, so yeah, moral of the story is pair the right lot, right? Yep line to the rod your reel yep is the least should you should spend the least amount of money on your reel if it comes down to it because i mean if you're if you're catching like big kings or you're fishing for a tarpon or permit or bonefish or carp you yeah. want to have something with a decent drag and a decent arbor because there are going to probably take you to your backing or put on a good fight and take you to your reel but yeah Honestly, most of the time for trout fishing and most of the stuff you're going to do, you're going to be able to strip it in and maybe use your reel, but your reel is the absolute last thing you need to worry about. Yeah. As a trout fisherman, I would, if you are listening to us from like Florida or you do tarpon fishing or some of those big game, uh, you know, fishing, you're definitely want to go put your money towards uh, all of it like all around because uh, some of the cheaper reels have like a plastic bearing inside. And I mean, I've heard of people like hooking into bonefish on, you know, cheap reels and uh, the bearing ended, ended up melting, you know, or a fast, a fast, like a red fish or something. It's just going to eat your um, reel alive. So, uh, but yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so, for most of the stuff you're doing in Washington, you can get away with a cheaper reel. Yep. Um, but yeah, make sure everything's paired up. Go to your local fly shop if you don't know much about how to build your own or have a buddy like Keaton so they can help you figure it out. Yeah. One more thing I wanted to add to that, and then we can keep on moving on this, but um, making sure if that, uh, if that fisherman in your life does saltwater fishing, um, don't buy anything without a sealed drag uh, make sure or uh, yeah sealed drag system um, 
and that way salt water's not getting in there. Salt water is very corrosive and it will eat your reels alive. So make sure to get a sealed drag and then make sure to tell that person to wash. Even though it says it's a saltwater reel, make sure to soak it, wash it, and make sure um, you're, keeping it, you're keeping it clean. Because over time, saltwater is just a bitch of its own. So For sure. Um, saltwater eats a lot of stuff. So yeah. definitely take care of it. Um, I think we're going to hit one more topic tonight. I know Keaton and I have a couple other topics that we want to hit, but we are um, over an hour now uh, into this, so we don't want to keep you guys too super late. And it's 9 o'clock my time and 10 o'clock Keaton's time. So it is getting late. We've been talking. We've shared some good stuff, but we want to wrap it up on um, one more topic. What do you What do you want to end up on here tonight, Keaton? What, what's the last thing we want to talk about that we have written down? Let me Let me take a look here. I mean, these are really good, but I, we're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk more about stuff into the into the future. Just the two of us. Yeah. I think we. I think um, what we should talk about is for our last topic is what to do when you're sitting inside your Alaska house and there's, <laughs> there's too much snow on the ground to do anything, any sort of outdoor activity. And I kind of geared this, you know, I'm in Washington. It's really wet and rainy here. You can still get out and go do fishing and stuff. Um, but Kyle, what do you do to keep that cabin fever off? Honestly, if, if I can stay inside right now, I will because I don't like to drive in these kind of conditions. Yeah. Um, but, and I had such a long, exhausting, grinding summer that I, having time inside is kind of nice right now, to be totally honest. Um, but it is important to get out. So um, in the wintertime, got snowshoeing. I haven't done any skating or skiing, whether that be Nordic skating, ice skating, Nordic skiing, cross-country downhill. I haven't done any of that. So it might, might be something I look into doing more. A lot of our local stores have consignment stores that can um, get us uh, by cheap gear. You can rent gear from places, have friends take you out. So I need to do more of that. But Emily and I do snowshoe. We snowshoed last uh, weekend, went and checked some trail cameras. Um, that is one thing I like to run the wintertime is trail cameras because I can kind of I have time to go check them um, and manage them and things change in the wintertime. You get a cool transition uh, with the various types of animals and what those animals are doing, their routines. Uh, but in Alaska, it's hard on trail cameras when it's negative eight degrees. So yeah. something I got to kind of manage. I pulled all my cams down last week. Um, but yeah, any kind of things can't you can't slow down up here. I mean, you can. If you transition along with the weather, you can keep doing things. You're just basically changing your gear, how much you layer, and how many hours you have. Right now, this morning, I think it got daylight a little after, like close to 11, and it got dark by like 4. So you don't have very many hours of daylight, so you got to yeah. most of it. Otherwise, I'm in the house recording podcasts, reading um, or tying flies, thinking about next season, just whipping out bugs. I already... 
I know what bugs I need now for next season based off of what I use this season. So I mean, I've got a whole box of just woolly boogers. I got a whole box of just Dalai Lamas. I got a whole box of different colored beads that I'm painting some right now and yeah. stocking up, just getting ready for the, for four months of summer. So I can have eight months of winter to prep again, basically. Nice. That sounds good. I, uh, I, one last thing about that too is I'm reading this book right now. I was telling Keaton it is. So I always heard about Tom Rosenbauer and his books and I'm like, yeah, Tom Rosenbauer, he's a God in the fly fishing universe. And uh, I just, I just, I don't know if I thought maybe his books are overrated or something and that people were just in love with Tom because I'm in love with Tom, but I thought maybe people were just, fangirling hard or something but uh, i was at my used bookstore and i picked up a copy and i think that they've had new editions come out since i'm sure they have but this one was printed in 1993 and this was um, um an orvis guide prospecting for trout by the author of reading trout streams by uh, tom rosenbauer fly fishing secrets from a streamside observer i'm only 45 pages into this book and I've had to reread some sections and I'm sitting down and if I get tired of reading it, I will set it down and come back later because this book is so good. It makes me reflect on so many different things that I've witnessed, either fishing or guiding and things that planning for the future and how to read water and what to look for and hatches. And right now I'm in a section of this book talking about how the geology um, of a river surroundings affects how, um, rich that river is so if you have a spring creek that goes through limestone it's going to affect the the um, the water i, I don't want to i'm still trying to wrap my head around i'm going to reread this section like uh, too. Yeah. yeah it's like the way that the water um, erodes at some of these minerals and those minerals are now dissolved into the water and it affects the conductivity and various it allows some plant species to grow which allows things crustaceans and like scuds and sow bugs to grow and those fish are going to eat better because you have a rich environment versus a, a really high gradient river that's going through a certain type of uh, rock that doesn't break down the minerals when they dissolve they're, they're not beneficial and it totally affects the way the fish are it, it's something i never thought of that this book is super cool about let me add a real life uh, one, um, and I you, we can throw this out there because everyone knows about it. Um, but like, if you compare the Snoqualmie River and the Yakima River, um, mm. and the size and quality of fish that you're getting out of each one, um, I was, from my understanding, is that you're not getting that uh, as rich of um, like what Kyle's saying. It's a lot to wrap your head around. Um, but you're not getting that geological um, nutrition from those rocks to cause hatches, which does actually affect your fish size, which I thought, like, when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's actually really crazy because the Snoqualmie has a bunch of fish in it, but your, like, maybe biggest fish is 13 inches compared to, like, you know, a place like the Yak or somewhere where there's a lot of nutrition and a lot of things hatching and Sorry to just jump in on you, but I just wanted to add like a something that people can put in their mind. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Okay, back to you. No, I appreciate it. Or 
or you can take it a step further and compare the Stone Colony to Rocky Ford. Yeah. Rocky Ford has at, at its good times, it has a lot of fish, but there's a lot of big fish. And it's because you look at something like the Snoqualmie, I'm sure the Snoqualmie, I'm sure it blew up when that water fluctuated, right? When we got all that rain. It's very emotional. I mean, it just changes like really quick, goes really high. So I'm sure that also has an effect on the fishery as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you have a river like that, that's affected by runoff. You have different type of different gradient different type of geology whereas you look at rocky ford which is a spring creek it stays in the 50s year round it doesn't freeze over in the winter you've got a, a, a lot of aquatic plants it comes out of the ground it's warm you have a lot of big fish because they're eating a lot of scuds they're eating a lot of little nymphs and stuff that can thrive in that habitat thrive in that uh, environment and just your quality, your size, your amount, where those fish hold, why they hold there. It's just it all depends on where that water is coming out of and what is in that water specifically. So prospecting for trout, super great book. And that's just one of the many things that I've learned in the first 45 pages. I'm really looking forward to the rest of this book because there's a lot of things that I never considered that is completely blowing my mind. So read up on Daddy Tom. He knows what he's talking about. I think um, I think at whatever level of angling you're at, you can always improve from, uh, you know, watching something beneficial, especially reading something beneficial, um, the way you look at a certain piece of water, the way you what you might choose that day. Um, I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into why fish eat certain things. So um, I agree with Kyle on that. That's um good to know and i think when you're done with that guy you need to send it to me you can get your own copy this is this is a coveted copy oh what oh, that's not fair i'll go buy the new copies there you go no i'll send this to you it's super i uh, i've been fly fishing for 20 years guiding for this will be my fifth season next year and there's things in here that i never considered or thought of and i'm not to say that i know everything because i obviously i don't i'm always learning every day um, but there's things in here that completely went over my head that just totally makes sense. Wait, Kyle, I thought we brought you on this podcast because you knew everything. Um, that was a bad joke set up. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> um, so I think that's some great tips. Um, you know, just get in your vice. Uh, if you haven't, if you're new to fly fish or whatever, you know, try it out. Um, I know down here we do some local meetups with clubs. You could get involved in a club um, and like go out and um, they'll do, they're doing some in-person meeting, um, but things are kind of hopping around with COVID and the way things are laid out. And, um, but that's a great way to get out and talk fishing and meet people. Um, and then down here in, it's not an Arctic wasteland. So you can still go out and do some winter fishing, um, but yeah, get out there and, you know, enjoy some time or, you know, get on the vice or get in the book and uh, any, any of those options are going to make you a better angler or an outdoorsman. So I think um, that was some great stuff. I think we talked about some good topics today, Kyle. I think so. Yeah. Definitely think so. One thing you guys can consider too um, <clears throat> in the winter time, is listen to this podcast. You might learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. 
Um, also, <laughs> we're going to be firing up the blog here pretty soon. And I know that I have a personal blog called Kyle on the Outside that I haven't done not very much with lately that I would like to basically copy paste and edit, maybe update some of those blogs that I wrote um, and throw it on our website. Things that I've learned fishing some places um, in Washington that you guys might consider for either winter fishing or for next year learning up on that. So stay tuned for that on our website. I'll be adding that up, uh, especially Rocky Ford, yeah. my favorite winter fisheries. Um, there's all there's things to do. You just got to, put a couple extra layers on and uh, break ice out of your guides and <laughs> keep fishing. Yeah. Um, let's end this like we normally do. Let's both do a fishing story. Let's do a personal fishing story. Let's go. You first. Uh, so one that stands out. Um, up here, we have a bunch of pinks in the river and the silver start coming in when the pinks are pretty thick. And, uh, this one day I was testing out this new fly pattern with one of the other guides and we were, Oh, we had a day off <clears throat> and, uh, we weren't catching any silvers. And, uh, I had this secret fly that a client gave me. And, um, within the first like five minutes, I caught my first silver. I let my other, my buddy borrow that fly. He caught a silver, we left that spot, went to another hole, boom, he caught his silver and he had his limit. And so he was waiting for me and, uh, I lost, I snapped one off and then I, I was just kind of flogging water with this fly, like just waiting to catch a silver, wait to catch a silver. And you would hook into pinks at almost every cast, but if you can't see the fish eat it, you can tell if it's a pink or a silver because the silver would just wham it annihilate it whereas a pink would be like ah and they grab it but they didn't they yeah. didn't they didn't commit to it and uh i've been flogging this stretch of water and i walked upstream like, i'm gonna test this out up here willie and i'm standing on this bank looking down at the river and there's this giant line of pinks within like 10 feet of the bank and it's really deep and it's a there's a tree that sticks out upstream so it kind of creates a really slow current where I can see down and they're just stacked in there where that slow current is. And I throw a couple, I throw my first cast out and I swing this thing through and these pinks are going after and eating it. And I either pull it away from a pink or I don't set the hook and just let them spit it out. Run it through, run it through a couple casts, not getting anything. And one thing I noticed about these silvers is that they sit either under the pinks or just on the outside of the major schools of pinks. So on this, like my third cast, I cast out, just a little bit further past where I have been like towards the middle past the school of pinks. And I'm halfway through my swing and boom, this silver bullet shoots out from the bottom of these pinks. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I'm like, Oh shit, that's a silver. Boom. And I set the hook because that thing had come out of the bottom of these pinks on the far side, shot through the pinks and boom, annihilated my, my uh, fly. And I was like, well, I got, I got, I got one. And he comes running up with a net and gets down there and, get that thing in and we were both limited out on silvers that day super cool but it was just knowing that i needed to put this fly where this silver was sitting away from all these pinks knowing watching that silver bullet come up and just freaking annihilate that fly it's super cool that's badass yeah. uh, i know we're doing stories but have you done any top water action for coho up there not um on the river that I normally guide uh, yeah 
we've done a little bit. I haven't personally done any, so I don't know yet. But out out west, we did, and it it, it was pretty incredible watching 12, 14 pound salmon crushing <laughs> crushing like a popper the size of my almost the size of my fist. Yeah, this is pretty insane to watch. That's pretty dope. There was this one hole we pulled into, and the wind was blowing up river, so it was pushing me back into this cove. And we were throwing a popper and a, a dolly and we would hook a fish and we'd fight it and get it in. And the wind would blow me further into the cove. And as I'm trying to row out, my clients were still casting a popper and we catch a fish and it'd blow us back in and net it. And then I'd row us out and we catch another, we took another fish. I eventually like, guys, put your rods down. We got to go. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be out here. It's going to be, well, I guess it's summertime. So it's not going to get like, well, in what it was, this was the end of August in Western Alaska, so it got dark and it got shady. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it was you're right on the Bering Sea, so it gets cold. Yeah. And well, I'm gonna take my uh, I'm gonna take my story on a little throwback to Montana this um, early fall. Um, we we're fishing uh, a well-known river uh, and uh, called the Madison River. And uh, we're coming down and we're in a drift boat and the, the river kind of kicks out. And there's this little like, it's almost like a little side pocket. And uh, there's a down tree that comes down it. And that day we we're swinging streamers. Um, and so as we're floating by it, I, I was head hunting for a big brown. That was my, my, my goal of the entire trip. I was like, I want a brown that I can like, you know, get that nice trophy brown looking fish and uh so i I was working hard it's probably like hour or two in i caught a rainbow and some uh other you know smaller fish um and then i I hit this log and i'm like oh that looks juicy the seam rolls in hits the side of the log and then you know how sometimes on the side of logs they get that nice soft seam that looks like it's just bouncing off the log Mm -hmm. and so uh, as we float by it i just i cast kind of behind us and i just pop it right into that um, like right where the water collides into that, um, into the log and I give it a couple strips and I just let it go tight and it just swings that log, like all the way down it. And as I'm coming off the end of the log, it just smacks this big old streamer, just, just hits it like a freaking freight train. And we fought this fish probably about a hmm, couple minutes. And then, uh, it, I got a nice photo with it. And it was just, it was like a butter Brown, you know, like that kind of gold Brown. They're beautiful. Um, and, uh, it actually ended up not being my biggest fish of the trip, but one of my most, you know, m- memorable ones, um, that I won't forget. Um, so, and a little shout out to everyone that's out there working hard with, the uh, everything going on, on the Madison, sending some prayers your way. That's, that's a tough, tough season for that fishery this year so um thanks for doing what you're doing yeah dude that's sick that's a sick story yeah i know that was some good that's a good way to end a podcast so heck yeah let's uh let's not end it on a bat on the sad note though what's going on in the madison we'll pick that up on the next episode of just yep Yep, perfect (laughs) well all right guys appreciate you listening to keaton and i ramble i think yeah we had a, honestly Keaton and I would have had the same conversation whether we recorded or not. So, yeah. to record. We hope you guys can pull something out of it. Uh, 
Signing off, I'm Kyle. And I'm Keaton. Catch you on the next one. Thanks. Deuces.